Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare hi everyone welcome down to history it's another takeover today i'm handing the reins of the pod over to our sister podcast how and why history and the reason i'm doing that is because it features the brilliant justin pollard who's a great friend a great scholar and just a he's like an international man of history this guy in this episode we're going to find out all about alfred the great we're going to work out how and why he burnt his cakes actually probably mostly the why how is presumably he exposed them to too much heat if you like this episode Please search for How and Why History wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, rate, all that stuff. Coming up this Friday, How and Why delves into the South African Boer War. If you like this one, there are 30 more episodes to enjoy if you subscribe to History Hit TV. We've also launched the World Wars podcast. The podcast coming thick and fast, everyone. That brings together all of History Hit's World Wars podcasts for five years worth of World Wars content. And there are new shows every week. That's from Professor James Rogers. In the meantime, let's find out how and why King Alfred burned those cakes. Ever since his reign in the 9th century, Alfred the Great has been fated as one of the most accomplished of our kings. A learned and religious man who encouraged education, Alfred defended his lands against Viking invaders. In the same year, Alfred king of the Anglo-Saxons, after the burning of cities and the slaughter of peoples, honourably restored the city of London and made it habitable, and he entrusted its defence to Ethelred, elderman of the Mercians, and all the Angles and Saxons who had before been widely scattered, or who were not in captivity with the pagans, voluntarily turned to the king and placed themselves under his rule. A tribute commissioned by Alfred the Great from Bishop Asser that inevitably emphasised his positive achievements. But how did Alfred, King of Wessex, become Alfred the Great? How effective was he in fighting the Vikings? And why did he burn those cakes? I'm Rob Weinberg, and to answer the big questions about this unforgettable king, I'm joined by the historian Justin Pollard, author of Alfred the Great, The Man Who Made England. This is How and Why History. Justin, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, absolute pleasure. Why was Alfred, King of Wessex, known as Alfred the Great? Well, it's a very good question, because during his lifetime he wasn't known as Alfred the Great at all. In fact, he doesn't really become Alfred the Great until really the Tudor period. So he was known as a very good king during his lifetime, 
But it's after his death, really, that later chroniclers like William and Malmesbury and Geoffrey Gaymar hold him up as sort of like a, a mirror of monarchy, how a good king should be. And during the Tudor period, he gains this epithet. The only king we have who gains this epithet, the great. Henry VIII being Henry VIII did try to get people to call him Great Harry, but that never caught on. But with Alfred, the terminology has stuck, and that has a lot to do with who Alfred was and what he actually did. But also it has to do with what he became associated with later. In the medieval period with being a great king, a mirror of monarchy, and in the 19th century he becomes associated with being sort of the founder of the British Empire which is not something he would have recognised in the slightest. And as such, having a great king as the founder of the British mission to civilise the world, the title was sort of reinforced then. First of all, where was Wessex and what do we know about Alfred's early life? Wessex was a kingdom. Up until Alfred's day, there was no kingdom of England. England was actually made up of lots of little kingdoms, some large, some small Wessex, which is in the south, was one of the larger of the kingdoms. It was Wiltshire, Hampshire, Somerset, Dorset, Devon, that sort of area. There was Mercia in the Midlands. There was Northumbria, East Anglia in the Far East, then Essex, Kent and Sussex. And they formed what was called the Heptarchy. There were seven nations. They all had their own king. They were elected. So there were a group of nobles who chose each generation from a group of families, a king for each. And one of those would normally be sort of the top king, Primus into Pares, and they were known as the Bretwalder. So Offa in Mercia was a Bretwalder. Redwald in East Anglia was a Bretwalder. And so Wessex was just one of those kingdoms, an important kingdom because it's in the south, so it faced across the channel to Francia. But it was just a local kingdom. And it's only then over through Alfred's life and then beyond, particularly into the life of his grandchildren, when that slowly expands and becomes consolidated into what we would know as England today. In terms of the boyhood of Alfred, we do have a bit of information, strangely. It's very unusual to get much about these early medieval kings at all, because we tend to have entries for them just in chronicles, which literally usually have a line per year, saying, you know, in this year, King Whatnot died, or someone was born, or there was a battle. But for Alfred, we have a biography by a monk called Assa, who was Bishop of Sherborne. It's a strange book. Part of it seems to be from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and is sort of a year-by-year history of Alfred's life. And then part of it after that is sort of vignettes from his life. And we do have some stories written by Assa, who's a contemporary. He's living at the court of Alfred of Alfred's early life. So we know he was born in Wantage in Berkshire in 849. His mother was called Osber, and she was a Mercian lady. We don't find out much about her. Queens in Wessex generally don't appear much in the history. They're not even actually really called queens. They're generally known as the wives of kings. But we have one story that Asa writes that she gets a beautiful book, and she says to her children, the first person who can read this book, I'll give it to. And a book is a very valuable object of the day. And Alfred can't yet read but he gets someone to read it to him and he learns it and he recites parts so he gets the book by reciting it which shows how sort of diligent and learned he was going to be it's a convenient story it might not be all that true but it's the only moment we really get of a little boy with his mother in the Wessex royal family in the ninth century Asa says he's his dad's favorite his dad is King Ethelwolf and certainly it's unusual in that he stays at court with his dad it's quite usual in Viking and Saxon society for young nobles to be farmed out to other families. They go to 
other noble families and they're sort of adopted and brought up there away from their own people. But he stays at the court. So it looks like he's being trained up as king. And he does this extraordinary thing when he's just a little boy, when he's four years old. His dad sends him to Rome. And we know about this because we have the papal records report him arriving. We have records of him at the various sort of way stations along the way. And he arrives there. You know, he's very little. I think he's four years old. You know, he walks into Rome, this huge city with the Colosseum and the great walls around it. And he meets Pope Leo IV, Leo the Great, and Leo makes him a consul of the Roman Empire, which is not really something that is sort of an honorific title at the time, but it's an extraordinary thing that happens to him. And then he comes home, and then he goes back with Ethelwolf, and they spend a year in Rome. By this point, Leo has sadly died, who's become his godfather, so he seems to be a bit upset by that. But this episode then builds up the story that Alfred is going to be some sort of divine king. What Asser says is that Leo actually crowns him king, which he doesn't do. That's not what the Vatican records say anyway. And this is all really Asser, who's writing his book at a difficult time for the Wessex state, building up a propaganda backstory for this little boy. But it does give us these little moments in Alfred's young life. But that is about all we know. It's a huge amount compared to any other Anglo-Saxon child prince. But this is still the ninth century, so it's slim pickings, really. So he becomes king of Wessex. How does he then go on to become king of the Anglo-Saxons? He comes up against the greatest threat of the day, which is the Viking invasions, which have started in uh, 793. There's a very famous Viking attack on Lindisfarne. And from that date on, there are more and more Viking attacks that begin as piratical raids, but eventually become much more threatening with you have whole armies who come over and start overwintering. They start staying here. You know, they're not just here for a bit of cash. They're actually invading forces who go around the country, not just demanding money. We often think of them as always in battle and fighting and killing people. In fact, if they possibly could, they would just turn up, get money off whoever was uh, living there and go away again. It was a protection racket that they ran, really. And... Over the period of Alfred's reign, this became more and more serious. And what the Vikings started doing was actually deposing local rulers in the Heptarchy. So they turn up at Repton, which is an important centre in Mercia. And just by turning up, the king of Mercia scuttles off to Rome, never to return. He runs away because he daren't face him. And they don't take over themselves. They install a puppet king. So then they have all the money they want. And Alfred is the only king who finds a way of fighting back against them and through that he begins to bring the country together becomes effectively primus inter pares first amongst equals amongst the remaining rulers of the heptarchy such as they are he never becomes king of england it's his grandson who's the first person who could really call himself king of england but he does become the head of the Anglo-Saxon peoples in England. He represents those people who are not under Viking control. And his life is the process of building up from Wessex into that position of having hegemony over the Anglo-Saxon part of the island, really. In the meantime, the king, during the frequent wars and other trammels of this present life, the invasions of the pagans and his own daily infirmities of body, continued to carry on the government, and to exercise hunting in all its branches, to teach his workers in gold and artifices of all kinds, his falconers, hawkers and dog keepers, to build houses majestic and good, 
beyond all the precedence of his ancestors by his new mechanical inventions. To recite the Saxon books, and especially to learn by heart the Saxon poems, and to make others learn them. And he alone never desisted from studying, most diligently, to the best of his ability. He attended the mass and other daily services of religion. He was frequent in psalm singing and prayer, at the hours both of the day and the night. What was it that Alfred did that made his fighting the Vikings effective? Well, he was very ineffective to start with. So one of the things that made him so effective was how badly he did to begin with, which is just what his brothers, who were king before him, had done, and his father before them, and his father before them. The great problem with Vikings were they're sort of the terrorists of the day. They don't fight nice. They will turn up, and if necessary, they will have a pitched battle. And these are professional fighters, so they're very good at what they do. They're formidable. And if they beat you, obviously they take hostages, and you have to pay them off. And what you do is, if you're king of Wessex, you pay them a large amount of money, and they say, right, we'll go away. And of course, they go away for a year, and then they come back again, and they do the same thing again. And the problem that all early medieval kings in northwestern Europe have is this goes on all the time. So the Wessex king will pay them off. They go to Francia. The Frankish king thinks, oh, no, they've arrived here. He pays them off. They go back to England and they just bounce backwards and forwards across the channel. And they're very adaptable. They are a naval-based operation. So where Anglo-Saxons tend to think of rivers and seas as boundaries to Vikings, they're highways. They don't really care whose land is whose. They go where they wish. If something looks undefended, they take it. If it is very heavily defended, they run away. Although a Viking would tell you that, you know, it is a great honour to die in battle. They're not fools. If it looks like a bad deal, they just go away. So they're a very difficult, elusive enemy to deal with. And all the Anglo-Saxon kings, up to and including Alfred, did this incredibly badly. What they did was they raised the feared, which is the, the peasant levy. Their army is just ordinary working men, really. You often turn up for battle, you know, with agricultural tools. And they attempt to fight the Vikings, and usually they lose. Sometimes they win. And when they win, the Vikings will dutifully get themselves baptised and say, well, I've become Christian, and they will write a treaty and swear in their new Christian name, the treaty that they won't invade again. And they go away and next year they come back and do exactly the same thing again. There were cases of Vikings converting to Christianity and back twice in the same day. They were a very, very elusive and difficult enemy for a Christian king to get his head around. And Alfred does no better than anyone else at it, really, until an extraordinary event happens where eventually he's deposed. And it's this deposition which is the famous events in Athelney, which changes his thinking and which sets him out on a path that is completely different from any other European king in how to deal with this new sort of threat. So this is the point where he allegedly burns the cakes, the story that survived about Alfred the Great. This is this extraordinary thing. You know, it's rather like George Washington was remembered for being quite a good surveyor. I know all the things Alfred did, burning cakes, which is, which is a made-up story, is ludicrous. But the story is an allegory and it has meaning. What happened is that Alfred was at Chippenham for Christmas and during that time, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Vikings invade 
and he just has time to escape to Athelney, to the Somerset levels, and the Vikings take over Wessex, basically. So he's lost everything. Finally, they're not just going to come over and raid, they're going to take the whole thing for themselves. And while he's in the wilderness, wandering around, very disconsolate, we get this story. And this story first appears in A Life of St. Neot about a hundred years after Alfred's death, so quite close to the time. And the story says that Alfred is disconsolately wandering through the Somerset levels and he comes to a swineherd's house and he begs for shelter and the swineherd is out with his pigs and the wife of the swineherd says, oh, come in, come in, yes, and she looks after him and she's baking some loaves or in some cases some cakes and Alfred is, you know, he's had a bad time of it and he's in a bit of a dream and he's not really thinking about what he's doing and he's not watching the loaves and they start to burn. So the swineherd's wife rushes in, having smelt the smoke, and tells him off. Extraordinary thing to do to a king. He said, hey, you're very happy to eat my loaves when they come hot from the oven, but you're not prepared to stop them burning. And Alfred meekly takes this telling off from a peasant woman, of all people. Now, it's an odd story in that what does it mean? And you can tell there are lots of versions of this throughout the medieval period, and none of the writers, they all know the story, but they're not quite sure why. What I think it means is something that neither Asser nor the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tell us, is that it wasn't just a Viking attack at Chippenham. It was actually a coup. What had happened was the Witten, the senior nobles in Alfred's court, had decided, like the other kings before him, he wasn't dealing with the Viking threat. Probably better the devil you know. And they sided with the Vikings, as had happened in Mercia just recently. And they invited the Vikings in, got rid of Alfred, and he ran away. But what happens now is the extraordinary thing, because in the case of Mercia, when the Vikings arrived, the king ran away to Rome, and that was it, end of the Mercian dynasty. But Alfred goes into hiding in the Somerset levels, where this story arises, which appears to be, I think, is an allegory on how in the previous four years, he hadn't attended to his people and his kingdom. The cakes are his people. And because of that, he was punished. He was kicked out by his own people because he had failed to prepare for the return of the Vikings. And as such, he was no better than any previous king. But what he decided to do at Athelney then was summon an army and fight back and actually take the Vikings on in a battle. And after that battle, change the whole system of how the area was governed. American politics are all struggle and strategy, passion and persuasion, and so much scandal. And they always have been. I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, we're delving into Alexander Hamilton, whose bio was big enough for Broadway. From war to women and a dueling death to boot, Hamilton is a fundamental chapter of the American tale. Join me and a cast of worldly experts to meet the real Alexander Hamilton on American History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned the Vikings were obviously this naval power. Did that force Alfred to develop his sea defences and his own navy? He did later, certainly. After the Battle of Eddington, he had this great battle in which he confronts Guthrum and the Viking army. This is very much a land-based campaign at this time. And he wins. But he decides to do something very different now. And the different thing he does is rather than say, right, become a Christian, promise to go away, and we'll leave it at that, or kill him, which was the other option that lots of people were keen on, what Alfred decides to do is he'll give Guthrum the same problems he has. So what he does is make Guthrum a king in his own image. And this appeals to Guthrum, you see. He says, you can have the land to the east of Watling Street, what becomes the Danelaw. And you can be a king just like me, a Christian king with all the benefits of that. And Guthrum thinks, well, this is quite good. I have my own kingdom. And he agrees. But of course, in doing so, Alfred also gives Guthrum all the problems of being a king. He makes him sedentary. He makes him have to sit in one place. He makes him have to raise taxes and deal with nobles. He gives him the same problems that Alfred has himself. And so he now has a settled Viking force in one side of the country and the Anglo-Saxons to the west of Watling Street. But now he has to decide what is he going to do just to stop this happening again or just to stop another load of Vikings coming in saying, right, we'll have everything to the west of Watling Street now. And he does several things. The first one is he decides he is going to build a navy. It's not, if I'm honest, a fabulously good navy. It does have a habit of crashing into the south coast of England. But Alfred is the first king to realise that the waters around England are actually the front line of England. The seas and the rivers that go in from the seas are actually the highways the Viking use. So having a force to protect against that is the important thing to do. And he actually goes to sea himself with these ships and actually fights on these ships himself. So he's very active. Now, this becomes a much greater thing than it actually was in the 18th and 19th century when Britain is becoming a naval power. And of course, a country becoming a naval power needs a foundation myth. And our foundation myth is that the Royal Navy was founded by Alfred the Great. That's why we have you know, that now contentious song, Rule Britannia, which was actually written by Thomas Arne for a mask about Alfred the Great. And the first ship in the American Revolutionary War Navy, their first independent ship was called the Alfred, because the American Navy also claimed Alfred as their founder. So that's how he became known as the founder of the Navy. He did found a naval force, but it was just the very beginning of an idea of how to defend England. It wasn't actually much of a navy in itself. So we have uh, Alfred as king of the Anglo-Saxons, more secure on his throne. What are some of the outstanding features of his reign in terms of his administration and taxation activities? This is the greatness. This is the really extraordinary thing. I mean, winning battles is great, but there's a lot of luck involved. Diplomacy is important, but again, there's an awful lot of luck and personality involved. What he does is extraordinary, and it's administrative, really. The first and the main thing he does is he sets up the burgle system. Now, a burr 
is a little fortified town. There are still lots of them around. Winchester is one. And in fact, the layout of the streets in the middle of Winchester is still the layout that Alfred the Great laid out. Everything has just been sort of built on since then. And all of these little towns, they were defended, and they were about 20 miles apart, and they had roads between them. And this created a distributed defence network. What tended to happen with Vikings, they would go to wherever the seat of power was, like Repton or Winchester, and they'd just decapitate the regime. Easy. Then it's all ours. With Burrs, you have all these little towns 20 miles apart. You take one out, and people just move to the other ones. And from the other ones, they can come defend you if you're attacked. So it distributes power and defence in a way that is incredibly reflexive and can deal with these very sudden lightning raids that Vikings like to do. Also, it provides its own financing. The great problem any early medieval king has is they don't have a coffer full of thousands of silver coins. Most of the tax they get is in kind. The farm, as it's called, is food mainly because kings travel around all the time. So they can't raise large armies and keep them in the field. But with Burrs, what Alfred did was he'd give the people in Burrs a plot of land that's there. So they have something to defend, something of their own. So they developed a sense of community and defended their own town. Of course, they paid for their own defences because they were successful financially, because, of course, the roads that helped armies to travel down also carried trade down them. So this defended network proved to be an economic trade network as well as defence network and allowed each of these nodes within it to provide for their own defence. So it was a sustainable defence system that could remain in place. And that is undoubtedly, I think, his greatest achievement. But he also altered a number of elements of the state. It was usually the case with the army, with the feared, that once they were summoned, they were summoned until the king said you could go home again. And this was remarkably difficult for what is basically a levy of peasant farmers. Because if they stay away all year fighting, nobody's tended their fields. They're going to go home eventually to find their family have starved to death. That meant that what happened, of course, is if armies were kept in the field for too long, they deserted, as you would expect. So what Alfred does is he starts a shift system, whereby only a certain proportion of an army ever has to be on duty at one time. So all the others know when they can be off and when they can actually be doing their jobs and earning their living and tending their fields. And he does the same with his administration. So he starts to build a sense of a more professional administration. And by having that and having people who do have enough time to do one thing and the other and not just answer to their king whenever he demands things of them, he can start to do another extraordinary thing, which is start to rule by writ. And this is all part of his literacy campaign. Medieval kings, Anglo-Saxon kings, rule by travelling around all the time. They're peripatetic. They go from ville to ville, from village to village and town to town, and law comes with them. So they are the royal court. They are the arbiter of justice. Where they are, the kingdom is at that one time. And that makes it very difficult to actually rule a large area. What you want to be able to do is have a centralised government where you can send out orders to people who you trust, who will then execute those orders. And that is ruling by writ. And that requires that you have people throughout your country who are literate to begin with. And literacy was very low at this time. But once you have literacy, you can start sending out judges, you can start sending out laws, you can start sending out documents that people can read and understand and then reply to. So you don't have to be running around the country all year 
trying to keep up with what's going on whilst all of your detractors are running along behind you whispering. So those are the main sort of administrative changes. You mentioned the importance of education to Alfred. How much was that also to do with his desire to spread Christianity and Christian wisdom? It's interesting. I mean, at one level, very much, he is absolutely a Christian king, and we know he's a devout Christian king. And literacy is very important. But interestingly, what he wants to put out to his people, those books most important for all men to know, as he calls them, it's not just about being literate, which in those days tended to mean reading and writing Latin. What Alfred does, and he does this partly himself, as well as getting other people to do it, he translates books from Latin into Anglo-Saxon, into Old English. It is largely religious books, obviously. You have the first 50 Psalms he translates, Pope Gregory's pastoral care, and he translates the soliloquies of Augustine. And he does these himself, which is an extraordinary thing. And included in these books, he translates Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, which, of course, is a pagan book. Boethius was an administrator in the late Roman Empire, and he writes Consolation of Philosophy while he's waiting to be executed. So it's a very philosophical tome, as you might imagine, but it was an important medieval tome. And so clearly Alfred is not simply thinking about literacy as a way of spreading the word of God or getting clerics to brush up their Latin. He's actually thinking about getting the philosophy of Christian kingship and rule and law out to the people as a whole, whereby everyone can understand it. Even if they can't read themselves, they can have read to them in their own language what these things mean. So it is very much an early attempt at a a universal education system. And he sets up schools to try and spread this around the country. And of course, the more literate people he has, particularly young people around his country he has, the better the chance he has of being able to rule a country by writ and actually spread a law that is adhered to, because he rewrites a lot of English laws, which are all based on Mosaic law originally, but he rewrites those in English so that people actually understand what is going on. So it is about Christianity, but most importantly, it's about understanding. Now, the king was pierced with many nails of tribulation, though placed in the royal seat. For from the 20th year of his age to the present year, which is his 40th, he has been constantly afflicted with most severe attacks of an unknown complaint, so that he has not a moment's ease either from suffering the pain which it causes, or from the gloom which is thrown over him by the apprehension of its coming. Moreover, the constant invasions of foreign nations by which he was continually harassed by land and sea, without any interval of quiet, were a just cause of disquiet. What shall I say of his repeated expeditions against the pagans, his wars and incessant occupations of government, of the daily embassies sent to him by foreign nations, from the Tyrrhenian Sea to the farthest end of Ireland? You've mentioned the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and we've also talked a little bit about Asa, Alfred's biographer, How important were those two books to our knowledge of Alfred and the propaganda, if you like, which has perpetuated this image of Alfred the Great? You're absolutely right. The most important books we have are the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and Asser. Asser is living and writing at the time of Alfred the Great. He's a friend of Alfred. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, although it starts off long before Alfred's reign and continues long after, 
it is originated in Alfred's reign. It is Alfred's project to start the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And both the Chronicle and Asser, whilst they are useful historical sources, are absolutely pieces of propaganda. They exist as a propaganda tool. The reason for the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is to show the development of the Saxon state and to give a sense of how the Saxon state should continue and how it should become hereditary, which is something we talked about earlier that it wasn't originally hereditary. Alfred wants his children and their children to rule after him. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle sets up the idea of heredity within the kingdom. Asser's book, it doesn't look so much like a book as a selection of materials put together as before you write a book. And in fact, I think that's exactly what it is. It's being written at the time Alfred faces another invasion. He faces a, a large invasion led by a man called Haston towards the end of his life. And this biography is put together as a form of propaganda to justify the position of King Alfred. And also, I think, to prevent the dangers of another coup happening, as happened with Guthrum. So the first part of the book is basically just nicked from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Then you have all of these little vignettes of his life. But there are odd things. So the year of the Chippenham is completely missing. He just pretends it didn't happen. There's just no mention. But of course, as a propaganda piece, you wouldn't want to talk about the year that Alfred was deposed and had to run away before coming back. So I think the book was never then written up as a final biography because, of course, the need for it went away because the changes Alfred had made in his country by the time the Vikings invade again means that this Viking invasion is complete failure. Haston arrives with 330 ships and they leave in five. The Burgle system holds, the state holds, people stay behind Alfred and it's a great victory. So we have these bits and bobs that were going to be a heroic biography of Alfred surviving, but the need to actually write that heroic biography evaporated. So it was never done. How did Alfred die? The thing about the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is our main source for the end of his life, is that it's very matter-of-fact. Often there are only two or three lines for each year. So we know that he died in October of 899, and we're told the date he died. He was 50, he might have been 51, we're not exactly sure the year he was born. But a good age for the time, you know, particularly having had quite a difficult life. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle just says he was king over the whole of the English people, except for the part under Danish rule. And that's that. That is all we know. We know he suffered some illnesses during his life. He had a stomach complaint, which doctors still often argue over what exactly it was. He appears to have died naturally. We know he set himself the task of translating the Psalms into English, which at the time were kept in three books of 50. And he completed the first 50, but we don't have the second hundred. So we assumed that at that point he just died. And clearly, whatever happened to him, it wasn't strange enough for the chroniclers to mention it. So that would imply he just died of old age. Is there a tomb that people can visit? Ah, <laughs> it's a lovely thought. There was. Alfred was buried in the Anglo-Saxon Minster at Winchester, which was the great sort of family focus the old minster was replaced by William the Conqueror with the cathedral, which is still there today. There was also a new minster next to the old minster, and the Normans had that moved. Obviously, what they didn't want is a big focus for the old Anglo-Saxon royal family right next to their cathedral. So they moved that abbey to Hyde, 
which is just outside the walls of Winchester. And that meant, of course, digging up a lot of kings and queens. And a lot of those were put in mortuary chests, which are known as foxes' boxes. And they are still over the choir in the cathedral, in the present-day cathedral in Winchester. And they have the bones of Alfred's granddad and Canute and all sorts of other Saxon rulers in. Although they're all muddled up now because during the English Civil War, they were all torn off the walls and kicked around. So we don't know who's who. But Alfred and his wife, Elswith, they were moved with the new minster to Hyde. And they were buried, we believe, in front of the altar at Hyde Abbey, where they stayed very peacefully until, of course, the dissolution of the monasteries. And Hyde was dissolved, as all the monasteries were, and the remains became a private house, and then later they became a bridewell, a prison. And it was during their time as the building of the bridewell that workmen reported breaking into two tombs in the site of the old church, hauling the lid off, emptying out the contents, which included various bits of sort of, you know, regal cloth and whatnot, and scattering it in the earth. We now know that area where that church was is now a car park in Hyde, and there has been an excavation there, and they have found bones there. I'm not sure quite if everyone has agreed whether or not those bones are Alfred the Great or not, but his last known resting place was under a car park in Hyde. The second English king to be found underneath a car park, in fact. (laughs) In conclusion, what would you say was Alfred's legacy for subsequent kings? He was the mirror of kingship. So medieval kings certainly saw him as an exemplar of what a king should be. What he actually did that led to a lot of the modern world, I think, is the organisation of defence and economics, and that's the Burgle system, by setting up an economically independent system which can also protect itself was a stroke of genius, an early medieval internet, promoting literacy, which again is an extraordinary liberal idea at a time when the ability to read and write were closely guarded by small groups of people, mainly clerics, who didn't particularly want anyone else to have access to book learning. And he believed in an open access in your own language. That was extraordinary. And that led to his ability to actually start ruling a large country, ruling by writ, where you can rule from an executive position where you can send out information and receive information back rather than have to charge around on horseback trying to get people to do what you want. These little towns, which still exist today, and that system of having a literate administration that enables you to rule and cohere a large country, those are undoubtedly a legacy to all Western countries. Justin Pollard, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. How and why history. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.